Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Run and Make a Podcast. I just changed the name of our podcast. Very good. <laughs> well, this is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. We did take a run. We did we take like, a run. And, a glorious and run. Getting Well, glorious, that's pushing it a little <laughs> bit, but... Um, we were walking in and getting ready and we, we run in this office park and there's a loop around this, I don't know, it's not, it's not a strip mall. I mean, it's got woods and things and, and we were getting ready to come in and Yolando Hinton himself said, we are going to have to up it and do two loops instead of just one. So that was a beautiful moment for me. It was um, lightheaded fatigue. No, it was good. Yeah, it's I can't just believe getting I said too that. easy for you. I know yeah. it was great. It so, was an out of body so experience. That so. would be what about four miles? If we did two loops, yeah. No, I think it would be five. Five. Okay, good deal. Yeah, well, stay tuned. But we won't change the name of the podcast. So, other than that, other than your running aberration, what is astonishing you this week? Well, um, as you know, you know, we have been holding these annual events called prayer summits and. Uh, we gather as a church to ask the Lord, you know, what do you want us to do? We're not going to assume uh, you're simply going to bless our agenda. We pause and say, God, give us your agenda. And one of the one of the things we've been hearing for the past few years is outreach, outreach, outreach into the community. And that's daunting for a congregation of less than 50 people. We worship in a sanctuary that was built in the 80s that seats nearly 400 people. And so we feel very small. Um, we feel like we don't have enough resources to do very much. And yet the wonderful, faithful people at Derrida Church have taken a great step of faith to say, well, if God said do outreach, let's do outreach. And so we began with partnering with a, a group uh, that provides showers for the homeless, and they led us to an organization called Champion House of Care, which does so much with the homeless, um, uh, with especially children. Um, they also host an adult daycare for special needs adults. Um, um, they are hosting uh, an annual toy giveaway for kids in our neighborhood. Monthly, they do, um, uh, they just call it the community give giveaway. And companies like Ikea and Walmart and uh, Lowe's and a few others just donate things that people really need, like blankets and clothes and food. And, and uh, they set out tables in the parking lot and say, everyone, take what you need. And it's a blessing to the community. And um, I am grateful this morning that last night our elders in our board meeting have voted to establish a long-term relationship with Champion House of Care by asking them, by inviting them to move their entire operation onto our campus uh, and uh, to partner with us uh, to be a blessing to our community. And, you know, for, you know, one, it is going to bring so much um, activity onto our campus, but also it's just going to give us the opportunity to meet and bless people, meet and bless people, meet and bless people. And I think that is going to be 
the future growth for us. Is that who does your summer camp already? And we partnered with them to do a summer camp mm-hmm. this past year. Yeah. No, I think it's really good. Well, that um, what was astonishing me this past week is related. Um, we have a, a not nearly as extensive partnership, but a, um, a longstanding partnership with an organization in the city um, called the Coalition for Cultural Compassion, which really started, I mean, I don't, well, seven or eight years ago. Um, but one of their annual events, which is really um, beautiful, is they have a um, they have a Black Santa, that event. So they, you know, going to see Santa is kind of a um, ubiquitous cultural custom. And there are Santas in malls and other places. And the majority of the Santas out there are white and um, mothers. Initially, this was mothers for cultural compassion, and they expanded, so they changed it. But there were mothers in the group of all ethnicities, um, raising children of all ethnicities. And one of the things that they talked about and heard was just that, um, like, it just really matters to kids to be able to um, see a figure like Santa Claus that looks like them. And so... Um, which is not something, I mean, Santa's not really a big deal in my family. Um, and obviously, well, not obviously, my children are white. I've never thought very much about the ethnicity of Santa. So, um, but I think it was, you know, beautiful in this group for, again, mothers of every ethnicity to hear that and go like, oh, well, this is something that we feel like we can step into a gap. And it doesn't, it doesn't, save the world it doesn't change the world but we can do something beautiful for our neighbors and so they do this um they've done it the past six years at the grove and um they have these amazing um actors who play mr and mrs claus and they come in and the the setup is two days it's a four-hour event but they just like set up all these spaces for santa and mrs claus and then they have all these different stations were like snacks and games and face painting and crafts and just all, and it is totally free. And, um, it, you know, and I, I, I was there and, and I took my youngest, who's my only Santa, you know, curious kid left. Um, but, you know, just been so amazed the past couple of times I was there about, you know, it just is another thing that to me is like the economy of God. It's something beautiful that springs up there's you know you there's nothing to buy no one is selling anything um but clearly people have invested real treasure of time and money in order to create this for their neighbors and I would say you know the majority of the people in this group do not have black children um so it's really beautiful just to see um something um, you know, that is, it's, it's a multi-ethnic community group, but they're doing this thing that really centers the experience of a certain, um, portion of their population and in a really beautiful way and listening to the need. And it's just, um, you know, it's just joyous and it's just so interesting to see, um, it's so astonishing and beautiful to see how much it means to families to come and like the kids are all dressed up and just people lingering and talking. And I think, um, you know, the, the through line for both of those things for me is that, you know, I think that the 
church does best when what we're thinking about is not how do we get credit or how does this benefit us or our institution, but just how do we bless our neighbors? And sometimes that looks like it's it's not our thing. Like we are, um, we're the partners, we're the background, we're, you know, and that that's okay with us because what we are about is not getting institutional credit and we don't, you know, God doesn't need our marketing. What we need to do is be faithful and look for our opportunities to be faithful. And I mean, obviously we want to be good stewards of what we have and we don't want to be reckless or foolish, but we also don't need to walk into every situation going like, well, what's in it for us? Or how is this going to help solve our existential, you know, anxiety about the future? But just to say, look, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord, but we are here right now. And so what does it look like to be faithful in this season? And sometimes it looks like, I think often it looks like saying yes and doing good, even when it's not strategic or it doesn't, it's not part of a, you know, outlined growth plan. And it's, it's just good for goodness sake. See what I did there? See that throwback? I I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard you. And and it, that's a that's a nice contrast, you know, to some of the stories that we've heard over the past few years, of you know an event where there's a black Santa and the response is negative. There's a story I think last year, no, but yeah, because we were just coming back from <clears throat> COVID, and uh, I believe this was in South Carolina. Uh, I think it was a city or a town event. There was a black Santa, and that man received death threats mm-hmm. from people in the town. Well, I mean, I just think we obviously have so much um, racial, ethnic animosity towards each other. And I would say, like, white people, uh, some white people feel this unexamined sense of ownership of the way, you know, the classic traditional way is the right way. And that is the way that associated everything good with whiteness. Um, and so, to be able to say, you know, this is the same way that people are arguing about, like, you know, uh, casting of Marvel movies and, like, you can't have a Black Mermaid. Like, we all recognize that while there was a St. Nicholas of wherever, I know you can Myra, tell us. Yes. I think. Who, which was Turkey, right? So yes. not well, a white dude. And assumed to be a very dark-skinned man. Some historians say that there was actually a um, uh, some folks from a, a tribe um, – in Africa, uh, Nubia, I think, uh, that sailed up the Nile through Egypt, and then you come out into the Mediterranean Sea, and you, you make a right, <laughs> and you're in southern Turkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's just interesting that, you know, we, we want to both, um, particularly in talking about Jesus, like the central revelation of Jesus' incarnation, which means we absolutely have to um, unpack the truth claim that God was made flesh and not generically, but particularly born in real life, a particular time and place. And so into a particular town, into a particular family who had an ethnic identity, mm-hmm. which wasn't white, by the way. Um, and so to know that there was a St. Nicholas and that that was a real person who came from a real place in time, but also Santa Claus 
is a myth and recasting that myth in different ways should be something that we could all say, oh my goodness, we don't need to fight about this. And if this is a way to be a blessing to children, like how, how wonderful to be a and part Santa of And Santa Claus is a myth designed to get us to do a particular thing, which is buy toys. Right. So Santa Claus is designed to give us this image of this jolly big man in the North Pole who makes toys for kids so that right. we buy toys for kids. When the real St. Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, uh, was not big, he was thin because uh, historians tell us that he, uh, one of his primary spiritual disciplines was fasting, so he was unusually thin, and that the red robes that we see on Santa Claus were really the uh, red robes of the bishop. Uh, and so we totally get that. I thought uh, it was Coca-Cola changed it from green to red in yes. the early 1900s. But I do think, like, if you had told me, whatever, 20 years ago, someday you'll pastor a church that will on, have a big Santa event, I would have been like, heck no, I won't. <laughs> well, but Because I'm, you know, the, the Santa Claus of it all doesn't matter to me. But creating a space where that's accessible for families to come, regardless of, what resources they have and have a joyful day with their kids and a, a, to meet a need of an underserved um, segment of the population. Like that's very, you know, that to me is very much in line with the gospel in general and the call of the Grove in particular. And just the sense of like, we just don't always know how the Lord will call us. And so we have to, we have to then have values that, guide our decisions not absolutes like we will have to x or we will never y so anyway, well it's very beautiful and i want to say this as well um images matter images matter a lot i saw a commercial just this past week for a new movie that um is about the nativity and you know mary Joseph and the baby Jesus looked very Euro. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to see that movie. I, I think we're still recovering from um, Liz Taylor as Cleopatra, mm -hmm. Charlton Heston as Moses. Mm -hmm. Images matter. Um, I heard an African leader uh, last week say part of the problem with the continent is that in many places – people are still worshiping a white Jesus. And so when African leaders debate with, meet with um, powers, uh, formal colonial powers, there is, there's something there that will still will not allow them to fully break away from the influence of France and Britain and Germany. And this particular African leader was saying, we got to stop worshiping a white Jesus. Not worshiping Jesus, but worshiping a very Eurocentric, Euro, the, the, the Jesus given to us by Europeans. Well, I think two things. One, there's a really great short video that you should pause this podcast and go look up right now. I think by the BBC called like white, it, it is called like um, white, I think it's called white Jesus, but the premise is there's a guy playing, white guy praying in a cathedral and saying, like, Jesus, you know, come and help me. I just really need your help. And then a not like Jesus comes and he's 
not white. And the guy's like, who are you? <laughs> I'm Jesus. Mm-hmm. I've heard your prayer, my son. I've come to you. And he's like, you're not Jesus. Yeah. It's very funny. Um, but the other thing is I think, it, you know, it is always right. And there are lots of beautiful nativity scenes imagining like an Asian holy family or a native holy family or a black holy family. And I think for people to, to one way to understand the incarnation of God is to understand that when God put on flesh, that that is connected to me and my flesh. And so to be able to envision a holy family that looks like your family as a, as a theological imaginative exercise is not in and of itself wrong at all as long as it's anchored in the historical reality that Jesus was born a Middle Eastern Jewish peasant, and as long as it doesn't center one of those imaginative visions, Jesus as Caucasian, and claim it as the historical reality instead of one of many manifestations of what it looks like when God puts on human flesh. So it's not only one, not only, you know, one manifestation, but the manifestation, the right. superior manifestation. Right. I think that that is the challenge. But I think in and of itself to imagine that God would put on flesh that looks like you, that's not wrong. Um, it is yes. wrong yes. when you are led by marketing and by, I would say, powers and principalities that are demonic to believe that your flesh looks more godlike than anyone else's flesh and to be aware that you don't always like wake up in the morning and think well i'm better than everyone else it's the way that all the images that surround you are are affecting you unconsciously and affecting your unconscious bias whether you're whether you're a white person or a person of color that deeply internalized sense that white is superior can come out in all kinds of ways and to the detriment of everyone, especially including white people. So, so we've tried to express that in the um, decorations of our Christmas tree in the sanctuary. So we have um, ribbon from different countries. So we have some uh, ribbon from China representing brothers and sisters from Asia, then some ribbon from, I believe, uh, Guatemala, representing our Latin brothers and sisters, and uh, then some kindy cloth from uh, Ghana, representing the African continent, and then we have um, uh, some tartan plaid representing Europe, and uh, then we put symbols of the nativity and the cross and, of course, lights, and so we, we're, we're saying for us this represents uh, Christ in the midst of the nations, Christ the light of the nations, Christ the unifier of the nations, that we are one in Christ. Um, and, you know, we try to uh, lift that up um, for our guests uh, during the Sundays of Advent to say, hey, come take a look. Because if you, if you sit halfway or, or to the back of the sanctuary, you don't really see the, the different ribbons. But if you get close to it, you see the intentionality of the way we've decorated the tree. Mm -hmm. That's good. So what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? I am thinking about the uh, death of Bishop Carlton Pearson, who died on, um, what was it, November the 19th. Uh, He was 70 years old. Um, He died of cancer. Uh, I believe it was his uh, second 
bout with cancer. Uh, we've talked about Carlton Pearson on this podcast before. It was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And Carlton uh, grew up um, in the, I believe, in the 50s, uh, the Pentecostal church, the Kojic Church of God in Christ, which is the oldest African-American Pentecostal denomination in this country. He grew up Pentecostal, very, very, very Pentecostal, very, very, very fundamentalist. Uh, When he was college age, he went to Oral Roberts University, uh, a very Pentecostal college, and he was even mentored by Oral Roberts himself. And he was, uh, as a young man, considered a shining, rising star. Okay, Kate (laughs) is showing me a picture of... (laughs) Her youngest in the lap of Black Santa. That is fantastic. Or Santa. We, we Santa, call it Santa. Yes. But she is um, has her face painted like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and is sticking her tongue out like she is a bad kiss impersonator. And I just... Oh. <laughs> um, and Santa looks very patient with her. Anyway, sorry. I, I love... Um, Carlton Pearson, and I am glad we're telling the story. Yeah, I just well, got distracted. No worries. No worries. Um, so... He became this this huge star in the Pentecostal church. And I remember in the 80s, I wasn't a churchgoer. I wasn't a Christian. But he had this annual event called um, the Azusa Conference. Yeah. And it was a big deal. It drew people from everywhere. And the music, phenomenal. And he's a singer as well and a musician. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it was at one of his conferences that he gave – T.D. Jakes, an opportunity to preach, and he mm-hmm. was the one who put, you know, introduced us to uh, T.D. Jakes. Uh, and so, he, and, and after, you know, college, he started a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It became a mega church. I think they had about five, 6,000 people a Sunday, and this was, you know, in the 80s. He, he was a big deal. And then his theology changed. He committed heresy. Yeah. He um he Rob Belled before Rob Bell. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, he was he was condemned pretty quickly. Well, he said that he was watching coverage of the genocide happening in Rwanda at the time. And he said he started talking to God about the suffering of the people and said, God, are you just gonna let them suffer? And then just sweep them into hell. Um, because his theology very clearly said, mm-hmm. unless you were not just a Christian, but his kind of Christian, mm-hmm. his brand of Christianity, mm-hmm. you were on the fast track to hell. And so he said, God, it, it just this doesn't make sense to me that these people are going to suffer and then you are just going to sweep them into hell. And he said he had a sense that God saying, is that what you think I'm doing? Mm-hmm. It's not what we're doing. And he started reflecting on his life and ministry, and he said he, he'd always felt this, this intense, this crushing pressure to get people saved. Mm-hmm. He's like, I have to, I have to get on a plane, I have to get on a boat or on a bus and preach the gospel because people need to be saved. And if I don't, Everyone's going to hell. And so um, he had this moment where he 
rethinks, not just rethinks, he is overwhelmed and astonished by the depth of God's grace. And he flips, he changes, he transforms from a person who thinks everyone but his group is going to hell into a person who says, oh, because of the great grace of God, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, everybody is in. They may not know it. Mm-hmm. Everybody is in. And so my job is to preach what he called the gospel of inclusion. You are included. And let me tell you why. Because God is so good. God is so loving. And whether you um, are conscious of it or not, God has already done something to rescue you from sin and death. Well, the Pentecostal world and the fundamentalist world and the charismatic world branded him a heresy um, because as part of his theology, he said that there there was no hell. And very quickly, uh, people left his church uh, by the thousands. Um, The building was foreclosed on. Um, Articles were written about him. People no longer invited him to speak at their conferences. People no longer came to his conference. And he was, I mean, he, he lost just about everything. And then um, when he hit rock bottom, he began to turn to Christian communities that were really on the margins, mm-hmm. um, churches that welcomed uh, gay and lesbians and transgendered people and churches that were um, churches that had questionable theology like um, um, I I think he ultimately landed in the uh, Unitarian Church Uh, I think I think he even spent some time in the Episcopal Church which is a you know mainline Protestant but ultimately, um, he continued to preach this gospel of inclusion as a heretic. Uh, and the, one of the things I find fascinating, fascinating about him is that, you know, in my study of church history from seminary, when you read church history, it's almost as if you can picture heretics with horns. Mm-hmm. Right? They just seem evil. And if Bishop Carlton Pearson is a heretic, he's a very likable heretic. He's a very gifted heretic. He's a heretic that, at the end of the day, in my humble estimation, I could be completely wrong. Though I, I, I disagree with, with some of his theology, but at the end of the day, it seems to me that he loves Jesus. And what he gets right is the astonishing, overwhelming, incomprehensible grace of God that, the gra- that we yeah. have put boundaries around God's grace in a way that is a denial of the very grace that we say 
is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, so many things. It has suited the powers and principalities of this world for the majority of the followers of Jesus to substitute thinking about Jesus for following Jesus. So, I mean, the reality is real talk. Does anyone who thinks seriously about God and faith, do any one of us believe soberly that everything we think about God is correct? Like none of us would have the audacity to say, I am 100% right. There is no misunderstanding in my faith, right? So if what makes somebody a heretic is just that they don't, you know, they think wrongly about God and they share that wrong belief with others, then, I mean, the only way to not be a heretic is to never think about God and keep your mouth shut. So, and obviously like the witness, if, if the gospels are, are meaningful to us at all, they're filled with examples of the disciples, like getting it wrong and misunderstanding. And when they get it wrong, they don't like get vaporized in a poof of holy furor from God and they don't get kicked out of the club. And it's not just they get it wrong before the resurrection. They get it wrong after the resurrection too, which is just very, very uncomfortable for us because what we want, what makes us feel comfortable, which again is a crazy thing to be seeking when you are trying to be in relationship with almighty God. But what makes us feel comfortable is this idea that there are institutions and rule books that we can just sign on to and then have certainty and know for sure. And that if we get something wrong, it won't be our fault because we got in line with the orthodox praxis. And and so instead of following Paul's admonition to work out our faith with fear and trembling, we say like, you know what, I'm going to trade freedom and I'm going to trade even part of the abundant life of Christ that I could have for security, right? Like I don't want to trust the grace of God or the salvation of Jesus Christ. I want these people who wag their fingers to evaluate me and how I think and say, okay, you're good enough or you're not good enough. I think even in our Presbyterian tradition, and I don't like this and we don't do it at the Grove, but you know, the tradition is you have um, confirmation and folks who are newly elected to be elders, they need to write a statement of faith. And then that needs to be reviewed by the elders to see if it's correct enough. And while I think it is actually a really good and beautiful thing to talk about what we believe in our communities, but not in a sense of like, okay, this is a test and you got to hit the minimum threshold or you're out. But in a sense of like, we are talking about things that there's no way any human being can comprehend. And so we're going to seek, you know, meaning and grace and understanding, but we're going to expect to like walk off into the mystery often. Like we've tried to turn faith into philosophy and it just gets crazy. And that's why, and you and I have this conversation a lot. Like I just, bad theology is bad. Like there's a lot of, I don't mean just like this is annoying or this is boring, but like dangerous, it's deadly awful. theology. Like there's a theology that justified the transatlantic slave trade and segregation. And right now there's a theology that is justifying what I think, uh, what I believe is genocide in the Middle East, right? So I'm not trying to be cute, like bad theology matters, but I think quote unquote good theology 
is is a different kind of dangerous, right? Like people just sitting around having like abstract, erudite conversations using, you know, words derived from, you know, Latin, you know, from the from the elite people who believe that they own and control and have all wisdom that exists, you know, that's, that's, that's a different kind of bad. And so I just think, um, there's so much of this sense, especially for people like you and I, you know, globally, we're incredibly privileged people, regardless of the difference in privilege that we have given our ethnicity in the United States of America. Like we are incredibly privileged people and it is comforting to say, oh, actually the kingdom of God isn't inviting us into a radical new way of life that will bring abundance to everyone. No, really, we're just called to kind of stay still where we are, enjoy our privilege and think about God. And it's people on the very margins who dare to dream of a different kind of world because they aren't satisfied with the crumbs of pleasure that um, th- that the current culture uh, uh, derives from them. So I just think, um, you know, I think of this, that, pr- you know, talking about Carlton Pearson and the pressure he felt. And I think you and I went to a conference once where we were where Bill Hybels was beamed in on the teleprompter and he talked about, you know, counseling all these leaders and CEOs and military leaders and they would talk about the pressure of leadership and he would say to them, yeah, I understand your pressure. Like if you don't get it right, your company fails and people lose their jobs. And I understand your pressure, General. If you don't get it right, a battle is lost and people lose their lives. But neither of you live with the kind of pressure that I live with because if I don't get it right, people lose their eternal souls. And I just think like only the best pastors get tricked into thinking that they're Jesus. And the reality is, and I, I don't hate Bill Hybels I, I, at all. I, I think he is a person who genuinely believed that other people's eternal destiny was on his shoulder and genuinely believed that if he didn't get it right, it didn't matter what Jesus did on the cross. He was going to fumble the ball on the whatever yard line is right before the one. Okay. Whatever. So I just think like you can't live in a healthy way believing that you have the responsibility to be God and having a different way of living, which I think, you know, Pearson, you know, the idea of believing that grace is really audaciously good. The idea of believing that we can really trust God. It's so uncomfortable and so unfathomable for us because we think, well, how would a person live? Like, what would be your motivation to do anything if you really trusted the goodness of God? And particularly for pastors who are trying to build institutions, like, we need hell. I don't mean me personally, but like, the reason that hell is so attractive to people who are founding movements and institutions and and congregations is because the threat, because it's easier to build a community around threat than around promise. Yeah, and that was really the sticking point. Well, there were two places where uh, people rejected him. Number one, the idea of universal salvation. Two, no hell. And I really wish the church had leaned into that a bit because, number one, Pearson was not reading other universalists thinkers and then trying to work out some 
right. systematic theology. He was reading scripture. He, he was yes, he was reading scripture and grappling with the grace of God, and um, like I w- I would push back personally on his thinking about hell. I think what he gets right is that so many of our images and so much of our thinking about hell comes from images and thinking in medieval Europe. Like like it's it's God's torture chamber. Right. Um, and so if if there had been a conversation with within the church to say, okay, no, it's not that. Well, if it's not that, then what is it? Or does it exist? I think that was the com- that that should have been the conversation. Yeah, I think I mean clearly if you're reading scripture, a theme that runs all throughout scripture is the judgment of God. Mm-hmm. Like that's there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's easy to say, "Oh, well we know what the judgment of God means. It means there's a basement to the cosmos and the furnace is down there." And people are going to burn forever. And, you know, Jesus tells a parable about a banquet, you know, and, and when the people come and they're poorly dressed, you know, you know, send them out to the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Like, I'm not, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what I think. Like, I, I feel very comfortable saying, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I am not, I, I don't, I cannot fathom the goodness of God ever being content with eternal suffering of any of the people that God has made. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that Jesus triumphed on the cross. I believe um, the promises of scripture that one day every knee will bow and worship, which is not coerced, but which is freely chosen. Right. So I just think, you know, there's, there's such, such reason for hope. And to me, I don't know how to conceive of a hope that includes, you know, eternal torment of anyone. And I do think eternal torment, to your point, comes more from, again, powerful institutions who financially profited over the spiritual control they had over many, given their ability to say, do what we say, or or literally we, because we are on Peter's throne and we have the keys to the kingdom, we will damn you to hell. So I, I think, I think, but I also think as someone descended from a group, from white people who had, who experienced themselves as being gods on earth, I think to have a healthier sense of the judgment of God and that God will not be mocked, and that we are not gods, and God is God, like that, the world, you know, I I just, I think you got to live in the tension of knowing what judgment means. Like, I think some of the cheap grace of just, uh, you know, I think most people will get mad at Carlton Pearson if he dares to announce that there's not a hell for other people, but in their own life, their functional theology is because Jesus died on the cross, I can do whatever I want. And and so there's no hell for me. So it's just interesting, like the sense of like, there's no, I'm not accountable to anyone, um, even God, because of what Jesus has done. I found this loophole. And so I feel like we do need 
a greater sense of like, look, God is doing something and we have to make a choice about whether we are going to be part of that or going to be um, overwhelmed by it. And I think, um, you know, understanding that, because I think the other reason that we're so attracted to hell is we just think like, well, if people don't believe they have to do this or else, they won't have any motivation. And I think that's a terrifying thing to me to think, I mean, and I, I get it, but to think we as people who follow Jesus and say we love Jesus, the idea of saying we are invited into the promises of God here and now, and we believe in these values, and we join in not because we're afraid of what will happen to us if we don't, but because we're compelled by the beauty and goodness of God. And so we could do whatever we want, but we want to be a part of this whirlwind of grace and even though it's disorienting and overwhelming we we want to be a part of that and and for so many of us though we really we really don't we're just like well how much like what what's the bare minimum i can do to still count in or in in order not to burn in hell you know and that's dallas willard has that great quote about, you know, there's just lots of people who are so sure that they want to live in the kingdom of God after they die. But why do you want to live in the kingdom of God after you die when you have no interest in living in the kingdom of God here and now while you're alive? Like, why do you want to sign up for eternity where the last are first and the first are last? And, you know, it's better to give than to receive. And the servant is the greatest of all. And that's what you say you want for your eternal destiny. But right now, when you have choices on this earth, you don't, you're not making choices that are aligned with the kingdom of God. So like, it's almost as if you don't believe that any of this is true. Yeah. And so with his, um, with his passing, I'm asking myself, why couldn't the church, I don't know, hold on to him? Why couldn't the church love him? Why couldn't the church stay in conversation with him? Why couldn't the church continue to um, allow him to walk with us, among us, um, and part of it is what you have already said. Um, I think he threatened um, institution. I, I think, when, and when I say the church, I really should be a little more specific. Um, he was the darling of white Pentecostals. Um, and so I think when his theology changed, here was this man who... You know, as long as he was singing and performing on stage and drawing crowds, and I, you know, last night I was just watching clips of his preaching, phenomenal, engaging. I mean, this, this man would, and, and it was rare in those days to have a Pentecostal preacher do all of the Pentecostal rhetorical flips and loops and talk about the Greek meaning of words. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and people were just drawn to that who could sing his heart out and was, um, I mean, he, he would do these things 
where he would he would just talk about the different ethnicities in worship and how different ethnicities you know mm-hmm. worship and it it was just a thing that was very entertaining and um i think once he changed his theology the white pentecostal said okay nope he's got too much power influence we've got to get rid of him fast and then there 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 are the the the, the black pentecostals uh and the black church in general and i think as much as i don't want to say it i think that the black church as well was seeking to protect institution protect power because in the 80s you begin to get the rise of black mega churches mm-hmm. right and so i think even the black church as much as he was loved i think the church loved its influence power wealth more and that's on the that's on the critical side i do think that there were some who just saw him as outside the circle of orthodoxy. And so we, you gotta, I mean, because the early church, I mean, the early church would fight over one word in the creed, right? right? I I mean, I will say, like, even we're talking about what does it mean to be a heretic and how do we, I mean, the, the meme that circles around December 6th, around St. Nicholas Day is, you know, giving toys to children and punching heretics in the throat, right? I mean, it's just this idea that has come from these very, very powerful institutions that some kinds of thinking are okay and some kinds of thinking, thinking are not even, you know, not even okay. And you, you see it like in a little bit, um, you've seen it in all of the church's conversations about um, LGBTQ and human sexuality, that it's not just this kind of sexual practice is sin, but even having an opinion about someone else in that kind of, if you don't have the right thought in your head about a practice that you're not even engaged in, then you are sin, right? So it's not just, it's, it's thought control. And I think that's where we really have to, because I think one of the things for me about Carlton Pearson, and I mean, you said this was like, why did the church reject him? I mean, the church, the church, the church never rejected him. Mm. And I think, you know, his integrity of being able to say, you know, he could have just kept it to himself. Right. True. And to be able to say, no, this is where this, this is the revelation that God has given me. And I'm going to tell the truth about that. No matter what it costs me, you know, to me, regardless of whether I agree with his theology or not, which I, I mean, again, I don't know, but the integrity of that walk with the Lord is astonishing to me. And that's why like Brian McLaren talks a lot about we, the, because most of the atrocities of the quote civilized world have been condoned by the church. And a lot of that has been because what we care about is what people think and what kind of language people uses about, use about God. And as long as they, you know, swear allegiance to doctrine and use the right language, they can do whatever the blippity blip they want in their actual lives because we have prized orthodoxy, right? Talking and thinking about God over orthopraxy, right? Practice. And so 
like another example of this would be years ago, one of the sponsor children organizations that's more, I think, Save the Children, which is more traditionally evangelical. They made a change and said, we are no longer going to require um, our sponsors to be heterosexual. Like now, if there's a gay couple who wants to send life saving support to a child, including supplementing that child's participation in Bible programs of the church that we pick, like that's okay. We're not going to edit these people out. And people went freaking nuts. Straight people, straight Christians were like, I am no longer going to sponsor this child with life-saving food and medicine because you are allowing gay people also to sponsor children in the same way. So this is forget all of Jesus's teaching about how we're supposed to care for people who are being crushed by the institutions of this world. All that matters to us is what an institution says about gay sex. And that is right thinking matters over right following Jesus. And, and I've seen it the other way too. Like the, we, um, on both sides of the culture war, whether that's, we label that conservative or progressive, what we will say to people is if you don't talk right and you don't name this value, you're, you're gone. Even if we can walk out the same actions. And I think that's, you know, that's the big problem is that most churches we're more concerned about getting people to think like we think and talk like we talk than actually saying Jesus called people into a certain way of living in the world and we can live that way together even if we radically disagree in terms of what who we conceptualize God to be or radically disagree in how we understand the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. Again, um, I've been listening to clips of his preaching and um, I've been astonished that, you know, even in preaching in a Unitarian Universalist church, his preaching is so Jesus-centered, so blood of the cross-centered, that he still sounded like a traditional Pentecostal preacher. I mean, the themes were exactly the same. Jesus came and died on a cross for your salvation. And he simply said, and this is good news for everybody. Right? And whether you know it yet or not. Which again, I would say, you know, you pay your money, you take your chances. Like that is not historically the way that the most powerful voices of Christian institutions have interpreted scripture, but that is certainly a reasonable way to interpret the scripture. Right. So I think that's, you know, the, and, and the, since you mentioned scripture, I think that night when he was wrestling with, God's grace for all and watching that coverage about genocide in Rwanda. I think he said the scripture that came to mind was the place in, I think it's one of the letters of John that says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Yeah. And he was like, wait, oh, 
how could I have missed that line? But not only for ours, and he interpreted ours to be those of us who are in the church, who are followers of Jesus, Mm -hmm. but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, because there are certain things we don't see because we've been taught not to see Mm -hmm. them. Because, you know, you read something and say, well, but don't you be stupid enough to think that that means what it appears to mean. It actually means something else. And again, I think it's because we're also offended by the idea of grace. Like I want grace to mean I can do whatever I want and I won't get punished for it. But what I don't want, but I also want to believe that because I have made this faith claim with my mouth or because I do my time showing up in service every so often, or I, you know, whatever it is that I feel comfortable doing, I have earned this grace. And the idea that someone else who has not done this would get the same grace that I get is deeply, deeply offensive to us, which is why, like, this idea that, you know, people get so offended that, like, oh, a murderer on death row found Jesus. Like, oh, a death, that's a death row conversion. Like, why should this person get grace? If you don't believe that people who have done great evil can seek and receive the mercy of God, then I don't think, I don't think, I don't believe that you have fully grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ, Um, which I think has everything to do, again, with our quest for our belief that God is reconciling the nations and that reconciliation is possible. Like, if, if there are groups of people who have been deeply historically and currently wronged by white Christians and have obviously understandable, reasonable, acceptable, justified mistrust and anger. But the offensive grace of the gospel says when people turn to Jesus and confess and repent, they receive mercy. And so if you don't want to be in community with your historic oppressors who have been forgiven, I mean, I understand that that's very human and also I can't think of a way to read the gospel wherein that's not part of it. I can't think of a way to read the gospel, the New Testament, most of which was written by Paul, who persecuted and murdered early believers. And then God didn't just say like, okay, come on in and sit over there on that bench and think about what you've done and feel crappy for the rest of your life. said, come on in. I have a role for you that is one of bearing the glory of God and leading and forming churches like that is the offensiveness of the grace of God. And I think, yeah, most churches believe more in hell and the power of hell than they do in the power of grace. And most of us spend a lot of time saying, like, let's make sure that we don't do good to people who don't deserve it. Let's make sure that we don't bless people who won't, you know, we can't just bless people because they'll just take advantage of us. Like, we do not believe in the power of grace. Yeah, this will be the last two thoughts that I have about um, Carlton. Um, I think what I can appreciate most about him is that for him, and as it should be, uh, for him, the good news of the gospel really is good news. Yeah. Like, it is good news, and I think the church just forgets that Mm -hmm. in our attempt to grow in our attempts to 
be influential in our attempt to have power and um, save ourselves, save our tradition, save our, we forget that we are stewards of amazing, astonishing, glorious good news. Uh, The last thing I'll say about uh, Carlton is um, you should go and listen to um, a podcast. It's from 2005, NPR. It's called This American Life. That's the series, uh, but it's it's the story of his life, and he tells it, and it is it is wonderful. I know there was a Netflix movie about him recently, but I think the podcast, hearing him tell his story um, before he got sick, um, it is really well done. So This American Life. 2005, uh, an interview with Carlton Pearson. Hmm. Well, I think we're out of time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It was, it was good. I, I think next week, well, I have things to talk about next week, but, um, but we'll save them wow, for next okay. week. Wow, okay. All right, very good. Um, thank you all very much for listening, and if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Dorita Presbyterian, you can go to their website, which is doritachurch.org. Right? DeRitaChurch.org? Com. Dot com. Sorry. DeRitaChurch.com. You can also check out um, Yolando's messages on uh, YouTube and on the um, podcast, the Derida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website. And you can worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And if you would like to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our YouTube channel, or um, find our podcast, which is uh, Look for the Tree with the Roots. Um, you can find it on iTunes or, you know, wherever. wherever. Um, if it's working, you can plug into our live stream at 10 o'clock. Um, you can pray for us because, man, the, the gremlins are the gremlins are real. Um, and you could also worship with us if you're in the area at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. So thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week.